Turn with me this morning to the book of Matthew as we continue in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, working through Matthew this morning. As we do so, we continue to see Jesus develop his sermon. And you think of sermon, and hopefully sermons have a progression to them that you can follow and kind of track with. That's kind of one of the goals of a preacher is that we would leave and you would not be walking out the door confused and scratching your head going, what in the world just happened, right? Uh, but that you would see a logical progression of the sermon and the message that is being proclaimed and preached about. Well, we see the same thing in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus teaches his disciples. He starts by, in verses 3 through 12, talking about the blessings of following Christ, what it looks like to follow the, the characteristics of the follower of Christ. In verses 13 to 16, he then moves on to think about as those who are blessed in Christ and exhibiting these characteristics of a follower of Jesus, we influence the world around us for the glory of God. Then he progresses on into verse 17 and 19 and speaks of the, the importance and the enduring nature of both the law and the prophets until verse 20, he speaks of the exceeding righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven, which leads to the, the verse that we just meditated upon, that that righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees is none other than the righteousness of God that is made available to all who place their faith in Jesus Christ. It is a righteousness from God, not one that we can attain ourselves. As we get into the remainder of chapter 5, verses 21, all the way to the 48, Jesus begins explaining this righteousness and explaining that it is much deeper than just a, a, a matter of rigid obedience. It goes to the heart. It, there, there's more to it. There's more to the kingdom ethic than just checking off a list of religiosity, of do's and don'ts, of obeying certain rules. The kingdom ethic begins in the heart. For true righteousness arises from the heart. That's the point that Jesus is going to drive home here in the remainder of chapter 5. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, we are not merely concerned with our actions but those who gather this morning who are followers of Christ, we are concerned with the state of our heart because we understand that the root produces the fruit. Before we get into our passage this morning, I want to just turn your attention to Genesis chapter 4. I want to read this to you this morning, Genesis 4, 1-8. You're welcome to turn there if you would like. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 4, in Genesis 1 and 2, we had the creation narrative, what God did in, in making all things well and creating. And then in Genesis 3, we have the fall of man as man rebels against God and, and sin enters into the world. In chapter 4, we read this account of Cain and Abel. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was, ang was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, 
Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. You must not, but must not rule over. I'm sorry, but you must rule over it. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Now, we look at this and, and we're asked, why did Cain do what he do? Do, do what he did. What led Cain to kill his own brother? We often answer, well, the sacrifices, and there must be something about the sacrifice that were different. God was uh, pleased with one, not the other, and, and we look at the sacrifices, and, but the bottom line is this. The reason that Cain killed his brother is found in verse 5. For Cain and his offering had no, uh, but Cain, for Cain and offer and Goodness, for, but for Cain and his offering, the Lord had no regard. So Cain was what? He was very angry. God even asked him, why are you angry? What does the anger in Cain produce? Murder. He kills his own brother. In verse 8, he, he comes to the point, he says he rose up against his brother Abel and he killed him. So we learn from the first account of man's sinfulness in Genesis chapter 4 after the fall. We learn right away that the actions, sinful actions, arise from where? From the heart. They arise from the heart. It was the anger of Cain that led to his killing of his own brother. Now, with that in mind, with that in the backdrop, hear the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said of those, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to, ju- to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift At the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny see jesus when he gets in and he's going to talk this week we're looking at anger next week we'll look at lust and he goes on to speak of divorce and oaths and retaliation and loving your enemies as we look at each one of those what we're going to see is that that jesus is explaining the true meaning the the true character the true intent of the law He, he is not contradicting the law when he teaches these and we'll see that as we work through the rest of chapter five he's not contradicting the law but he's peeling the onion he's peeling away the layers to get to the core of what the law means and you'll notice a pattern as we go through this in every teaching on the law there's a pattern where he says you have heard it said but i say to you and then he talks about the true intent or the heart of the problem now why is this important Oh, it's important because we tend to focus on the actions, right? We, we tend to be experts at behavior modification, that if we want to change something, we just change the way we act and we, we neglect and, and ignore 
the heart. But what Jesus is doing here is he's reminding us that our greatest problem is not just our sinful action, but the heart that produces these sinful actions. So look at verse 21. In verse 21, he begins by saying, you have heard that it was said to those of old. Now, how does that contrast to what Jesus says in the temptation? You remember, in, if you flip back just one chapter, Matthew 4, when Satan tempts Jesus, what is his reply? He says it three times. Look at verse 4. Chapter 4 of Matthew, verse 4, he answers what? It is written. It is written. It is written. He says three times. Here, he says, but you have heard that it was said. There's a contrast here. There's a, there's a difference. Jesus is not saying it is written. He's saying you have heard. Okay, there is a, a distinction. And, and we understand that the distinction here is he's not contradicting. Again, he's not contradicting the law. He's not dealing with just what the law says, but he's dealing with the rabbinic interpretation of the law, the classic, the common interpretation of the time. So you've heard that this is taught regarding the law. You've heard that this is taught regarding the law's punishment. And so here, what we have is we have Jesus, the very word made flesh, John 1, 14, the word made flesh, giving a clear interpretation of the true meaning and the true intent of the law. And we would do well to listen carefully to what Christ says. In verse 21, the first part, he says, you've heard that it was said to those of all, you shall not murder. He's referencing Exodus 20, 13, and then Deuteronomy 5, 17, which both speak of the, ten command, the sixth commandment, uh, you shall not murder. The second portion of, of verse 21, where he says, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment is in reference to the punishment that was revealed for those who murder. Genesis 9, 6, we read, Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. In Exodus 21, 12, we read, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. In Leviticus 24, 17, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. There were certain punishments that came for murder. And we understand that, we read that. And Jesus is now giving a very clear interpretation of what that truly means. The scribes and the Pharisees are going to stay on the surface. They're going to just stick with the action of murder. And as long as I avoid murder, then I'm okay. But Jesus is going to give an understanding of both the intent and the scope of the law. Such that it includes the heart and the little actions that we might otherwise overlook. That's what Jesus reveals in verse 22. So what I want to give to you first is this. The truth that we learn in verse 22, that the external law has an internal dimension. The external law has an internal dimension. I think a, a, a way to perhaps illustrate this is by a simple question. What color is an apple? What color is an apple? I'm sorry. What color is a Honeycrisp apple? Maybe I should say that. Red. Okay. And by the way, your Honeycrisp apples are the best apples. All right. Honeycrisp apple is red, but I would contend to you that I could also say that it is actually kind of a, a cream, white, light yellowish color, couldn't I? Because if we slice the apple, what do we see? We see that the, the peel of the apple is red, but what is inside is, is white, it's cream, it's a, a light color. One deals with the external, one describes the internal. We see Jesus doing the same thing. 
the, the external, you shall not murder. That's the action. But then he dives deeper. He slices the apple, so to speak, and says, let's see what's on the inside. Let's reveal what drives that. What, are the, what is the internal heart condition that leads to the external action of killing someone? See, the legalists, when they read, you shall not murder, says, okay, check, never done that, good to go, right? They move right past it. They look just at the pill. And Jesus says, no, wait a minute, back up, back up. It's not just to check it off, but we want to look and see what resides in your heart. We want to look and see what is on the inside. So he probes deeper. He looks at the anger that resides in our heart and the words that come from our lips, which in Matthew 12, 34, we learn come from our heart. So the insults, the, the belittling, the, the demeaning of someone else, it, res, it comes from the state, the condition, the overflow of the heart. So Jesus is looking at the heart. There are three points that he makes here. He says, uh, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to to hell. Now, th- this is not some type of, of progression of severity. He, he's not teaching that anger leads to insulting, leads to calling someone a fool. Th- this isn't a progression here. What he's doing is he's giving three illustrations, three examples to drive home a point, to, to show emphasis that, you know what, it's not just murder. You've got to also understand that the anger that resides in your heart, the same anger that was the root of what Cain did in killing his brother is the same anger that is sinful, is just as sinful as the actual committing of murder. You notice there in verse 21, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be what? Liable to judgment. What, what does he say about anger? Anger will also be liable to judgment. What about insults? If you insult your brother, you'll be liable to the council, right? The, the, the highest form of, of judgment among them at that time. What do you say about those who would say you fool? Liable to the hell of fire. All of them are just as punishable. All of them are considered sin, just as murder is considered sin. Yes, murder is a heinous crime. And, and we would look and say, how could someone do that? You hear, you hear the news of murder and you, you watch the news and you hear something, you just, you shake your sins. I just don't know how they could do that. Well, the way that that comes about is it starts in the root, a heart of anger that manifests itself and, and grows into this heinous act of murder. You see, murder is the physical destruction of one's life. But there are other ways that we seek to destroy another's life. I don't think Jesus is teaching here that there's no difference between killing someone and speaking ill of them. I, th- I think we understand the consequences of that are different. Ending of one's life, speaking ill of one, having anger, there, we do understand the severity of those. But what Christ is saying is that both arise from a sinful heart. Both are punishable and both, all of them fall short of God's holy standard. All of these are sin. To insult a brother, to call one a fool, to be angry in your heart. All of them cause us to fall short of God's glory, to fall short of his holy standard and to be in a place of needing help to be saved. To be saved. All of them leave us short. 
So the question, here's a question I would ask you at this point, is are you content with this mere external religiosity like the Pharisees were? Or are you content with just saying, you know what, I haven't killed anyone, I'm just going to check that off, good to go. Or are you concerned with the state of your heart? Or are you concerned with the, the anger within? You see, it's common for people to just be content with following what they consider to be the, the major rules of religion. Saying, checking off those boxes, that's pretty common. We come and, and we go to church to check off the box and we don't say the wrong things or the bad words to check off the box or we make sure we give our tithes to check the box. All those rules, all those things that we do. But you understand, we could do all of those things with anger residing in our heart. We do all those things with a heart that is not focused on the Lord. Sinclair Ferguson, in his little book on the Sermon on the Mount, he says that the commandment not only forbids the outward act, but also every thought and word that seeks to destroy a man's life. Every thought and word that seeks to destroy a man's life. The same eager, anger that leads to murder leads to insults and slander. The heart condition is the same. See, Scripture has a lot to say about anger in our words. This isn't an isolated text where Jesus says, talks about anger in our heart and talks about the words that we would say and insulting others and calling someone a fool and, and we move on and we have nothing else in Scripture about our anger or about our words. In Psalm 37, 8, we're told to refrain from anger, to forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. In Proverbs 19, 11, we read that it's good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. We're told by Paul in Ephesians 4, 31, 32, to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Instead, he, he calls us to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. In Proverbs 16, 32, we read that whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. That reminds you of the fruit of the spirit, right? What is one of the fruit of the spirit? Self-control. He who rules his spirit. Matthew 12, 34, we made reference to this a few moments ago. Jesus says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So again about our speech in Ephesians 4, 29, Paul tells us to let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. In James 1.26, we read that if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. And that person's religion is worthless. James 3.1-12, we won't read the whole passage, but James 3.1-12 is, is perhaps the most extensive words and, and teaching in Scripture on the tongue. He describes the tongue as something that is mighty, that is powerful, like a bridle that you would put in a horse to control a mighty beast or the small rudder of a ship that would guide the ship wherever it might go. Or he describes the tongue as a, a spark that lights a mighty and a great fire. He says in verse 8 of chapter 3, he says, No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. What do you think about that? 
The tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And he says, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. The same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so, he says. Scripture is clear. Anger does not achieve the righteousness of God. Our words, our words are powerful and can be destructive. We are called to guard our words. The words we say, the anger of our heart is important. We must not neglect them. Let me give you three reasons at this point that this teaching is important for us today. Three reasons is important for us to hear these first two verses from Jesus. First, is we have a tendency to check the I follow the rules box and disregard the state of our heart. We've mentioned that, and, and that's the first reason is we have a tendency to do that. I think all of us have that tendency. All of us have that leaning. We minimize or even disregard the anger in our hearts. The problem of the teaching of the Pharisees, they focused on actions and disregarded the heart. But Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 25 to 6, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, then the outside may also be clean. Don't neglect the heart. Don't just check the boxes and neglect the heart. I was reminded as I was looking over this one more time in my office this morning of just the focus on the heart in Scripture. In Psalm 24, 3 to 4, we're, we, we hear the question, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Is he who has clean hands and what? A pure heart. J- uh, uh, David knew this. That's why when David's caught in sin, he's, he's confronted with a sin with Bathsheba. He prays in Psalm 51, 10, create in me what? Clean actions? Help me to to just do the right stuff. Help me to just do things better. No. He says, create in me a clean heart. He knows that that he needs God to come and change his heart. In in Jeremiah 24, when God speaks to his people, he's talking about the new covenant, what he will do in them. He says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. I will give them that heart. I will give it to them. And they shall be my people. And I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. We read later in Ezekiel, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Walking in his statutes and being careful to obey his rules follows the giving of a new heart. God gives a new heart. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, we read that all those who are in Christ are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. We need a new heart. And finally, in Romans 2.29, when Paul's making his case about the, the common sinfulness of man, regardless of if you're a Jew or a Gentile, that you all stand sinful. We all stand sinful before the Lord. When he's making this case, he, he explains that a Jew, the person of God, is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, not by the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. Listen, 
You need to know today that you need a new heart. And the only way your heart is made new is by the transforming power of God Almighty. It is only through the blood of Christ that we're given a new heart. We need our dead hearts made new. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer, you need to repent from your sins and turn to Christ in faith today. And he gives you a new heart. He makes your heart new that you might trust him and seek him. You need a new heart. It starts there. And only God can regenerate your heart. The second reason this is important for us is that we are quick to excuse and justify our anger. We're quick to excuse and justify our anger. How, how easy it is for us to blame shift when we're angry. Oh, well, he said this. She cut me off. He did this. She did that. They said this. They stand for that. They promote this. And we blame everyone else. It's always someone else's fault. So we excuse and we justify our anger. I wouldn't be angry if it wasn't for them. I wouldn't be angry if she hadn't said that about me. But listen, other people's words and actions do not demand our anger. It doesn't demand our anger. When we, when we get to Galatians 5, 19 to 23, and we read of the, the deeds of the flesh and, and the fruit of the Spirit, listen to this. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, some terrible things. You know what's next? Fits of anger. Wow, fits of anger? How many of us have had fits of anger? Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like those. I warn you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But in contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against these, there is no law. Listen, the contrast is that anger is a deed of the flesh. Self-control and peace and joy and goodness and kindness and gentleness and love and peace. That is the fruit of the Spirit. Third reason this is important for us today is that we're quick to throw out insults about people we don't like because we fail to see the seriousness of our words. How quick are we just to throw out insults about people? We're talking and oh, it's all in... In, in the guise of, well, I'm just speaking the truth. I'm just telling it like it is. Just telling it like it is, man. Sinclair Ferguson, again, he says, we treat the damage we do with our lips very lightly because we do not see the corpses we leave behind. That hits home, doesn't it? We must ask God to deal with our heart. And we must seek not to destroy their words but bring healing with them. As Proverbs 12, 18 says, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrust, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. What do your words do? Do you just cast out insults, talk about people, and shroud it in telling it like it is, speaking the truth, or even the wonderful prayer request? Be careful with our words. Are we harboring anger in our heart? Be a question. Am I allowing anger just to brew? Am I destroying others with, our, with my words? If you say, yeah, I'm, I've got an angry heart. I can think right now. Just think right now. Who are you angry at? 
Is there someone in your life that you're harboring anger about? Is there someone that you are uttering insults about? If there is, I would remind you of what John said in 1 John 3, 14 to 15. We know that we've passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Love for the brothers is evidence of salvation. It's evidence of God's work in your life. Hatred is not. This brings us to verse 23, Matthew 5, 23. So is an important word there. So is a transition word. It's a significant transition word because it tells us that in response to these first two teachings of of Christ, the teaching that, you know, it's not just about the physical act of murder, that heinous crime, but it's also about the anger that resides in our heart. It's about the insults and the demeaning words that we would speak to others. As a result, the implication is this. You apply it in this way, two ways. First, verses 23 to 24 Jesus teaches us of the necessity of reconciliation. The necessity of reconciliation. If you so, if you're offering a, your gift at the altar, then there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You see what he says? First, be reconciled to your brother. The necessity of of reconciliation. We have the responsibility to take initiative for the reconciliation. He does not say, if you remember that your brother has something against you, then you know what? Go sit out in the foyer and go, go sit on one of the benches there and just wait and, and cross your arms and just tap your knees waiting for them to come talk to you. Maybe they'll see how grumpy you are. Maybe they'll see how they've ruined your day and they'll feel bad about it and then they'll come and ask for apology. They'll come and ask your forgiveness. Yeah. Or maybe if you complain to others about it long enough, they'll get the hint and they'll come. No. What does he say? He says, if you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift and you go. You take the initiative. You approach them. You go to them. That means we have to humble ourselves. It means we have to swallow our pride. It means we go to them and we seek out reconciliation because our relationship with others in the body of Christ is of much importance to God. He cares about our relationship with others. The question that I would ask is how in the world can we come before God and worship when we know that there's brokenness between us and another brother or sister whom he's redeemed? That that shouldn't be so. Reconciliation is imperative. it's, It's not optional. In 2 Corinthians 5, we're called ministers of reconciliation. How can it be then if we're called and we're to be known as ministers of reconciliation, those who would appeal to people to be reconciled with Christ vertically, that we would work for reconciliation with others horizontally, how can it be then that we would not work toward that in the body of Christ? How can it not be? How can that be? Peace and oneness in the body of Christ is evidence of our salvation. If it isn't there, we're living a contradiction. Living in contradiction. If you're at odds with a brother or sister in Christ and you're okay with that, you are living a contradiction of what you're called to be as a Christian. There is to be oneness. There is to be peace. There is to be unity in the body of Christ. This is, after all, how people are to know that we are his disciples. John 13, 35, people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Romans 12, 18 it says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
See, Scripture teaches that our relationships with others in the body of Christ has a direct influence on our intimacy and relationship with God. And so Jesus calls us first to reconcile with our brother before we come and we worship. You remember, you remember what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, um, 7? He's talking about husbands and wives in that passage. And he tells husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way, to love them. You know why? He says so that their prayers might not be hindered. Your relationship, husbands, with your wife has an influence on your prayers. In Mark eleven twenty five, 25, we read whenever you stand and are praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you of your trespasses. We have a responsibility to our fellow believers. Our relationship with them is important. Reconciliation is necessary. So I think the question that we have to grapple with in this application from our Lord is this. Are we willing to set aside our pride and to seek reconciliation with others? My experience has been when I am at odds with someone, I have to lay my pride down. There's a certain level of humility that you have to come before someone and seek their forgiveness. Here's what I would say. If you are not willing to set your pride down, if you're clinging to the sin of your heart more than God, then that anger in your heart is an idol of your heart. Because you care more about harboring that anger than you do about doing what God has called you to do, to go and be reconciled first to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. That's a significant Significant application for us. That we would come in here each Sunday morning and before we hear the call to worship, before we sing glorious and mighty, come thou fount by his wounds, nothing but the blood, and hear a sermon. That if there's something that we know of, there's brokenness between us and another brother or sister, that we would first approach them and seek to be reconciled. And the reality is is that there's hundreds of sinners sitting in here right now, (laughs) including myself. And we say things that are hurtful and we do things that are hurtful. Sometimes we intend it to, sometimes we don't. But it is very possible that we cause hurt, brokenness, or we harbor anger. And we have the responsibility to prioritize reconciliation with a brother. The second thing Jesus teaches, verse 25 and 26, he taught the necessity of reconciliation in 23 and 24. In 25 and 26, he teaches of the urgency of reconciliation. The urgency. He says in verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, you'll be put in prison. And he says, you will never get out until you pay the last penny. That's how it worked in that day. The illustration was one who owed a debt and was put into prison for not paying that debt. And he did not get out until he paid the last penny. Well, the problem is it's really hard to earn money in prison, right? You're gonna be there until the last penny's paid. And so Jesus' admonition, his instruction is to go quickly, to go quickly to resolve any issues that you have with others. The problem is, what do we tend to do? What do we like to do? What's the comfortable thing for us to do? Let's just sweep it under the rug. 
right? Let's just sweep it under. It'll, it'll take care of itself, you know? I don't really need to go to my brother. I, I'll just allow things to settle down, take care of itself. What we read Jesus pushing us to do and telling us to do is to be proactive in resolving anger and discord, to be humble in approaching another. Listen, the, the truth is that most broken relationships could have been preserved if reconciliation had been prioritized. That's the truth of the matter. If there's brokenness between you and another, it could have been resolved long ago if you'd have sought reconciliation. There's no better time than today to do it. If you have anger in your heart, brokenness with another brother or sister, I would appeal to you today to waste no time. Remember the necessity of reconciliation. Remember the urgency of it. Don't leave without dealing with it. We will stay as long as we need to. Deal with it today. How does this apply in your family? How does it apply to other brothers and sisters perhaps outside of this local body? The appeal is if someone comes to you, come to terms quickly. Come to terms quickly. Let me just close with these four statements. Four concluding implications for us as we wrap up this passage. First, we must learn to spot heart problems that lead to sinful actions. We must learn to spot heart problems that lead to sinful actions. Jesus is going to continue to drive that home through chapter 5. Examine your heart often. Be a student of your heart. Ask God to give you a clean heart. Second, refusing to reconcile is unacceptable for the follower of Jesus. It's unacceptable for the follower of Jesus. If there's someone you refuse to reconcile with, that is a spiritual heart issue. And it is an idol of your heart. And it is disobedient before the Lord. Third, Christ's followers should seek reconciliation as soon as possible. Don't wait around until you feel like it. I don't know that I've ever felt like (laughs) going and humbling myself and swallowing my pride to seek reconciliation. And then fourth, don't minimize the destruction and the seriousness of your words. The anger of the heart is liable to judgment. Insulting a brother is liable to the council. Uttering fool, demeaning another verbally is liable to the hell of fire. These are serious things according to our Lord. Let's seek Him. Let's ask Him to cleanse our hearts. Let's ask Him to do only what He can do. Give us new hearts. Let's not just check boxes of religiosity. and Check off, well, I didn't murder, I'm good. No. Let's see and consider the intent of the law. And let's live for God's glory the unity and the peace and the mutual love in the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we bow today. God, we are thankful for your word. 
And we're thankful, Lord Jesus, for your clarification of what the true character, intent, and nature the law is. Lord, there have been some just throughout history that would look to your word and just lead us to be legalists that would just check off a box, say, okay, I didn't do it, I'm good to go. I didn't do that, I'm good to go. But God, the reality is we have to examine our heart and our motives. We have to examine our words. And God, we confess that as we do, we confess, God, that we are sinful people. We are sinful people. And we have anger in our hearts. We say things that we should not say, things that don't honor you, things that don't build others up, but God, pull them down. So God, we are confronted again this week that our righteousness is insufficient. It does not achieve the righteousness of God and we need your righteousness, O oh God. The righteousness that you give us through faith in Christ. Christ, you are our only hope. You're our only hope. We cannot achieve righteousness and holiness on our own. We need you, Jesus. We need you. God, I pray that this body would be one that understands the necessity of reconciliation, the urgency of reconciliation. God, I, I thank you that I don't know of anything right now that needs to be dealt with, but God, that doesn't mean that on individual levels or, or small relationships or personal relationships within this body, there isn't something that needs to be dealt with. God, I pray that if that's the case, that God, you would give people the obedience, the humility to go to their brother, to go to their sister and to seek reconciliation. God, let us not just be hearers who hear your word and leave. God, let us be doers of your word today. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.